thank you for joining us for today's message. We're always encouraged to know how God is using this ministry to change lives. If you have a story to share about how God is working in your life, please let us know by sending us an email to amen at imtheexchange.com. Also, if you would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so online at imtheexchange.com. Doing this will help us to bless others and bring messages to you each week. Today's message is from our executive pastor, Pastor Kevin Kelts. Please take a moment and prepare your heart to hear a word from God today. I tell you, I'm passionate about the word that I that I have to share with you guys. This is something that's just burning down deep inside of me, something I'm very, very, very passionate about. Um, just having conversations over the holidays with uh, my family about what I was going to share this morning and and uh, talking to my wife, just bouncing ideas off of her, um, talking to my daughter, Caitlin, and we were just, I was like, what do you think about, what do you think about God's love? What do you think about um, some of the, some of the things that I, I felt like God was wanting me to bring out today, and, and so I'm excited. Are you excited to hear a good word? Are you excited to be encouraged this morning? I want you to be encouraged this morning. I want, we always want you when you come to the exchange, when you come here as fivefold ministry gifts, uh, us pastors here have been uh, raised up by God to be able, we're, we're actually a gift to you to equip you, and in equipping you, there's a challenge, so you're going to be challenged today. Is that all right? If you're challenged, do you accept that, the challenge? Everybody say challenge. There you go. You're with me then, all right? And then also, we're supposed to, there's supposed to be edification. You're, when you come here together in the assembly of people, we are supposed to edify one another, build each other up. Uh, it's like a recharging. And, and, uh, and so... Anyway, that's what we're going to do today. We want you to leave this place challenged. We also want you to leave this place uh, just feeling full, full of the word, but also we want you to feel uh, charged up, encouraged. And so uh, if, you, if you brought your phones this morning, go ahead and get them out and jump on our Facebook check-in at the Exchange Church and uh, go ahead and, and, and if something sounds good to you this morning, maybe God already spoke a word to you this morning in the middle of worship. Uh, go ahead and, and go ahead and Facebook that baby out there and get it out there. May, you never know. It might be something that somebody needs to hear. Um, and so I'm just going to jump right into, into this morning. I'm going to finish a sermon series that we started. This will be the fourth week. And the name of the sermon series is called It's All Good. Everybody say it with me. One, two, three. It's All Good good. One more time. One, two, three. It's all good. And the idea where this, this sermon series comes from is we have just celebrated Christmas, right? Did you guys have fun with your family and, and get to get, get, get the family together, maybe read the Christmas story, read about how we, what we do as Christians is we celebrate, this is the time of year that we celebrate that God sent his son that God incarnate came to this world, and how many know that's good news? Amen? Can I get an amen this morning? That's some good news that God came to the earth. It was such good news that the, uh, Luke tells us in Luke chapter 2, verse 10, and I'll put it up on the screen for you. He says that, he records that the angel told the shepherd, 
he shows up and kind of scares them a little bit. And he says, fear not, for I bring you good news. Everybody say good news. I'm going to share some good news with you this morning. And this is what we celebrate this morning together. He says, it's good news of great joy, and it's for all people. This was the message and and the question that we have been asking in this this sermon series is if the first original message was good news, if it was good news, if it was great joy for all people, for everybody, right? Then, Then why? Because we have a tendency as human beings that when we hear something that is good news, we lean into it and we want it to be true. A couple of weeks ago, I told you that I had started a job years ago, and it was a new company, and the guy was telling me in the break room one day, I know this is your first year, but you need to expect at Christmas time a $1,000 bonus. They always give us a $1,000 Christmas bonus. I'd never got a Christmas bonus before. I didn't expect one, but how many know that was some good news? And when I heard that good news, I leaned into it. I didn't know if it was true because I had not experienced it, but I hoped it to be true. And, And what we're saying is that when Jesus came to this earth, it was announced as good news. And when we as human beings hear good news, we want it to be true. And we lean into it. This is, this is the message. This is the original version of the good news. And what has happened, though, is we start to ask the question, why then is everybody in the world today, in your immediate environment that you live, your circle of influence, why is everybody not plugged into a church, plugged into a relationship with God? Why is everybody not leaning into this good news? That's the question. Because if it really is good news of great joy for all people, then like it did when it was originally given to this world, people would flock to it in droves and crowds. That's what happened when the original message was preached. And so the idea that we've been saying is one of the problems is the original version of the good news is different from the contemporary version that we have today that has been filtered, it's been changed, and it actually doesn't resemble the good news at all. It's, it's been filtered. Like I said, you see, when Jesus first showed up on the scene, when Jesus stepped onto planet Earth as an adult, what happened is the world leaned into this message. They, they wanted it to be true. They leaned into what was originally called, this is what they named it, they called it the gospel. And the gospel is just two old English, that that word gospel is two old English words put together that just means simply good news. That's just what they called it. They were like, and and in fact, you could go even far as to translate it as too good to be true news. So when people heard this, they said, wow, that is good news. And that is almost too good to be true. And and what happens is it caught on so fast and people drove and and, and the crowds and, and droves came to it so immediately that it was against all odds because this happened sandwiched between the Roman Empire, which eventually makes Christianity and the gospel illegal, and sandwiched between the Jewish temple, which was totally against this new message, was totally threatened by what happened is it caught on and it moved so fast. People heard the good news, and again, when people hear good news, 
We want it to be true. We lean into it. And the gospel, the original message of Jesus, the good news of great joy for all people. For who? For all people. For who? The good news of great joy for all people was so good that people decided to document it. Understand that when Jesus came to the earth, there was no such thing as a Bible. What you and I celebrate as the Holy Bible, it wasn't there. It didn't exist at the time. All they had in this uh, Hebrew nation, this this group of people called the the Jewish people, was their Hebrew scripture. That was the 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 prophets, the the um, the law and the prophets. It was their Jewish scriptures. Okay, that's all they had at that time. And when Jesus comes on the scene, and he starts to preach a new message, people were so excited about it that they started to write what we now know as the New Testament. It was amazing. And Luke tells us this in Luke chapter 16, verse 16. I'll put it up on the screen for you. He says this, that the law and the prophets, so that's speaking of what? That's speaking of the Old Testament. That's speaking of the Hebrew scriptures. He says the law and the prophets were proclaimed, this message was proclaimed until So there's a timeline there. It stops until what? Until John. Who's John? John the Baptist. Y'all remember John the Baptist? When John the Baptist comes on the scene, he starts proclaiming a new message, something new. Something new is coming. He starts telling there is one who is coming. It is the coming king. It is the Messiah. He's coming. Y'all remember this? Right? And, and, and this is something that the people in that day and that time had hoped for and had prayed for. And he says, something new has come when someone new is coming. And he goes on to say, he says, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, so that is over now. And since John proclaims something new, he says this, the good news. Everybody say good news. That's, highlight that in your, in your, your Bible. The good news of the kingdom of God since John came, he says, has been preached. And he says this, and look, everyone is forcing their way into it. Do you remember hearing the stories about Jesus and crowds followed him, right? They wanted to hear this good news, this good message, which brings us to attention. If the life and the message of Jesus today, guys, doesn't strike you as good news, then perhaps you've never really heard the good news. Think about that. If it just, if it's not so overwhelming to you that it seems too good to be true, perhaps you've never really heard the original, unfiltered message that Jesus brought to the world. That version was extraordinarily compelling. That message was to these people in that day and that time. It was worth telling, and it was it was it was told. It was now it's passed on from mouth to mouth. It was passed on. Now writing down, they started to write this down in Luke tells us that many people in that day endeavored to give us an orderly account of the life and the teaching of Jesus. And it was good. Everybody say it was good. That's right. It's all good. It is so good. And one of the things that makes this good news so good, and this is what I want to end uh, 
our, our year together with. And I want, to, I want to challenge you, and I want to also be uplifting to you and encourage you about how awesome this good news is, is one of the things that makes the good news so good is that Jesus, with his message, finally reveals who God really is. Jesus shows up on the scene, and he finally reveals who God really was. And and so for a second, I just need you to pause and remember, and we're going to talk about this a little bit so you can have perspective. This original message of good news of great joy for all people, I want you to pause and think, who and when did this message come to? Okay? So it, it didn't come in 2019, and it didn't come to America, to Americans, right? Who did it come to? Over 2,000 years ago, this is what we celebrate this time of year, Jesus came to the earth, right? And he lived, and he starts teaching, and he starts declaring this good news. And the original message comes to not even the world, right? The original message, Jesus comes to God's people. He comes to the Hebrew children who, if, if you think about this, guys, for years and years, a lot of people don't even understand this, that for years and years, the United Nations tried to sanction and make Israel a nation. And for year after year after year, they would, they would say, no, <laughs> we are not officially a nation. We are a people. We, we came from one family. Get this in, in your mind, guys. They were a people. You remember Father Abraham had many sons? They said, we come from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We, we have the same blood. We're the same people. They, they, they would say, if you were to make us a nation, then you need to make the Brookses a nation. We're a family, not a nation. Does that make sense to you guys? Okay. And so what happens is God comes with this original message And what he wants to do in this is he wants through his son to reveal his true nature finally to his people, which will be now revealed to the world and show us who God really is. Now, let me give you a little timeline. And I'll I'll put this up. I'm going to go through this, a very quick timeline of the history of the Hebrew people, and this is for just for sake of perspective, okay? So, B.C. means before Christ. Did y'all know that they're trying to do away with this? Go look it up. It's not B.C. anymore. It's B.C.E., and go see what that means. But anyway, we say B.C. So, in 17th century B.C., this is when the patriarchs came, okay? This is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the patriarchs of the Jewish people. They are the bearers of the belief in Jehovah God, a monotheism, one God. This had never, this had never taken place before. One God, okay? They settle in the land of Israel in that time, but what happens, guys, is famine forces this group of people. It's not a nation. It's a people, okay? forces them now, the famine forces them to Egypt, and we all know what happened there, right? All the way until the 13th century B.C., after 400 years of being imprisoned and oppressed and slaves. Think about that. For 400 years, this is this this proud people. They are in slavery. 
then, now there is a deliverer that comes, Moses. There's the exodus from Egypt. Moses leads the Israelites from Egypt, but it kind of takes a, a, a little turn that they didn't want to take because then they wander around for 40 years. Before they get to something that's really good for their people, they are established now in, in the 13th and the uh, 12th century B.C. Now the Israelites settle in the promised land. And this is, this is kind of a good time for the Hebrew people, the, the, Jewish, uh, the Jewish family, right? And so in 1020 B.C., the Jewish monarchy now is established, and they set in their nation or their people their first king, Saul. Okay, then at 1000 BC, now this is the golden age. Jerusalem has a king, and they, his king David, and this was, this was just an all, they always would think about this in their day and in their history. They loved this when David was the king. Jerusalem is now made the capital of David's kingdom in 960 years before Christ. The first temple, the national spiritual center of the Jewish people, is now built by King Solomon, right, David's son, and 930 years before Christ, the kingdom now, uh uh-oh, things start happening again, and it divides, it splits into two, Judah and Israel. And 722 years before Christ, Israel is now crushed through a war, and the Assyrians come. Guys, I'm telling you, it's kind of a sad story about these people. A war happens, and the Assyrians come and crush them, and 10 of their tribes are exiled. And 586 years before Christ, Judah now is conquered by Babylonia, and Jerusalem and the first temple. So their capital and their temple is destroyed by a foreign army, and they are taken captive again and, and, and to Babylonia. This is what you would remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You ever hear of Daniel in the lion's den? This is when this happened, okay? Then, in 538 years before Christ, many of the Jews from Babylonia, finally, uh, they returned from Babylonia, and the temple was rebuilt. If you ever remember hearing about Nehemiah rebuilding the walls, this is when this happened. Then, 332 years before Christ, the land is now conquered by Alexander the Great. Did you ever hear about him in your history books? This is what happened. This is not good for their people. They didn't want this to happen, so they've been conquered by the Assyrians. They've been conquered by Babylon. They've been conquered now by Alexander the Great. In 166 years before Christ, the Maccabean revolt against the restrictions on practice of Judaism occurs, and now there is a desecration of the temple. 142 years before Christ, Jewish autonomy under Hasmonius takes place, so they finally get the right back to self-government themselves, which is a proud time for them. But then in 129 to 63 years before Christ, Jewish independence under Hasmonean monarchy happens. Then 63 years before Christ, Christ, boom, Jerusalem comes in, uh, Rome comes in and captures Jerusalem. The the, uh, Roman general Pompey comes in, and now their people, this proud people who just want to be a family, and serve God and have their own land and not be dictated by any other government. They just want to be free. Does that not sound like Americans? We just want to be free to be able to do and practice what we want to do. Well, it doesn't happen for them. Then they are oppressed by another people, by the Romans, and they hate this. Then in 37 B.C. all the way to 4 A.D., Herod is the Roman vassal king. 
that rules as in the Roman government over them, and they do not like this. And then, bam, all of a sudden, Jesus shows up with a message to these people, not to you and me, but to those people. And he says, or the angel says, this is good news of great joy for all people. Good news of great joy for all people. And these people, these Hebrew people, at this moment, they have heard and they have read in their scrolls and in their history of the great prophets before them prophesying of not just one deliverer that was named Moses, but a deliverer that would come to their aid. And he was going to be the promised Messiah. Everybody say Messiah. And they're hoping and they're praying to Jehovah God. We've had this horrible, it's been a thousand years for us since we've lived in a golden age, God. I mean, our ancestors were 400 years in slavery, but it's been like a 900-year run where it's just been horrible for us. Come and set us free. Come, God, and save us. Save us. They needed a Savior. From what? Who did they think they needed a Savior from? From Rome. And they're begging and they're pleading and they're praying and they're sacrificing to God. He was the promised deliverer of the Jewish people that was prophesied. God sent him. They are sick and tired of being ruled over. They're sick and tired of being the tail and not the head. Right? Under, beneath only, and not above. That, that's, they're like, this is not... God, please come and save us. I mean, it's been about 900 years since the last golden age. And we know, though, they would tell their kids, we know Jehovah is not going to leave us by himself. The prophets foretold of a Messiah. And he'll be greater than Moses. Moses who delivered us from slavery of Egypt. Even greater than Moses, Dad? Yes, even greater than Moses. And he will come and he will save us. And guess what? Their prayers were answered, and he showed up to them first. Do y'all remember this? Jesus showed up, the Messiah. But there was a problem. He didn't look like they wanted him to look. I mean, he didn't come from where they expected him to come from. And he didn't say the things that they wanted him to say. See, they had a a mindset that came from Judaism, the history of their people that was passed down from generation, a mindset about Jehovah God. And in that mindset, one of the things that they believed to be true about Jehovah God is, is, is that he was vengeful that he would come and save their people with with vengeance and retribution. And so they have a mindset that when this soon-coming king, this Messiah comes, that's how he will look. And they wanted him to be better than the Romans, these rich Romans that were holding it over their head every day with all their wealth. They wanted a king to come in from royal birth. And Jesus shows up. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been misunderstood before? 
have you ever been misunderstood before? Have, have you ever felt like somebody just didn't understand who you really were? Let me, let me give you a, a couple stories that, that I was thinking about that I think really illustrate the message today. When I was a kid over, over 20 years ago, many of you guys know Pastor and Jared and I have been best friends forever, okay? And we went to high school together, and we played football together. And, uh, and when we were in high school, there was a rival town, okay? And I don't know what school that you're from, but whatever school you were from, you probably had a rival town, right? And, and when you have a rival town, you just hate those people from that town, right? I mean, I, I, it was the, the name of this scummy group of horrible people was Paducah, Texas. Paducah. That even sounds like dookie, duka, dookie. And I was taught from birth. I mean, this rivalry went back not only to my dad's generation, but I can remember my grandpa talking about playing the Paducah Dragons and, oh, we hate those people. And I was taught that nothing good comes from Paducah, Texas. Right? They're all scums. They're all horrible. Get this, every year in our, we marked a game on the calendar in the football season, and guess who that, we, we had to beat this one team. It was Paducah, because we hated them, and they were just trash, right? And we just wanted to destroy them. Well, get this, you're not going to believe how horrible these people were, and Jerry will remember this, we got to school that week, the, the Monday that we were going to play them on the Friday, we got to school, and they, those sorry scumbums had come in over the weekend, and they had spray-painted, the other football team had spray-painted an ugly orange paint. We were red and black, which is glorious, and they were orange and white, which is, and they spray-painted dragons all over our football field, and we had just uh, had like a bond election and built a brand new field house. It was beautiful. Man, they, they defaced it. They spray painted on our, the school property. Can you imagine such pieces of garbage? What, they, they don't have any morals. They're not teaching their kids anything. We got there, and, the, and our coaches got us together, and they said, look what Paducah did. Look at what these sorry suckers did. What are, you, what are y'all going to do? What's going to be your response? Oh, I, I thought I hated them. But now, I just couldn't even, I just couldn't wait. I just want to, I just want to get them on the field, coach. I want to get them on the field. Well, we got so pumped up. We went out that week and just killed them on the football field. And coach was like, yes, that's right. That's awesome. And, and, and my whole high school career, I just hated anybody from Purdue. Then I go to college. I'm in college, and uh, I go into a class, and guess what? In my first college, one of my first college classes, there's this kid that I recognize from Podunk Paducah in there. And the moment I saw him, I hated him. And I said, I said, in my mind, I was just like, if this dude even looks at, give me one reason, dude. I will punch you in the face so hard, man. I've never met this guy before in my life. Right? But I hate him. Then one day after class, this guy has the audacity. He walks right up to me. He's like, hey, man, you look so familiar. And I'm, I'm looking at him like, dude, who do you, who do you, you are so less than me. You are so garbage, dude. How can you even talk to me? And this is what he says. This is what he says. He says, aren't you Kevin Kelts from Matador? And I was like, yeah, what's it to you, man? And he's like, dude, 
we were rivals in high school. He goes, and, and I always hated you. But he goes, now I'm at, I'm at college. I'm meeting all these people from different schools. And I'm realizing, like, I never have even met you. He said, hey, my name's Dustin. Turns out he's not a turd after all. Turns out he was super cool, super nice, and we became really good friends. We would spend a lot of time together. He played golf. I played golf. One day we're playing golf. We, we became actual friends with somebody from Paducah. I know, right? So we're playing golf, and I told him, I said, Dustin, he, made, he was really funny, just great sense of humor. He was always making me laugh. And I said, dude, that is hilarious. Like, I love hanging out with you. I was like, dude, it's so crazy. I used to hate you for no reason, man, for no reason. And I was like, well, actually, though, I do have one good reason. He's like, what are you talking about? I said, you know, you know what you did. He's like, what do you mean? I said, when we were in high school, remember that big game, and y'all came over, and y'all spray painted. We know. We saw it. And then, not just the fill, but dude, I mean, I never would have had the guts to go and do what y'all did. Y'all defaced our brand new field house, man. We got so mad. And he goes, what are you talking about? And I said, dude. Hey, we're friends now. Like, you can be, I'm not mad at you. Like, but you, you did give me that reason to hate you. And he goes, I have no idea what you're talking about. Get this. So I, I'm married, and I've been married now for a little over 20 years, okay? We were high school sweethearts. Her dad was our basketball coach. He was the uh, defensive, no, the offensive coordinator for our football team. I call, we call him, my kids call him, this is their grandfather, they call him coach. I called coach when I was in high school on the phone. I was like, coach, am I making this up, dude? Am I just remembering something wrong? Like, Paducah defaced our property and stuff like that. He goes, oh, that's a cra- that's, that's crazy. Uh, we never told y'all the rest of the story. I was like, what do you mean? He goes, well, man, we had a lot of pressure to win that game, and we wanted to get you guys pumped up. So us coaches over the weekend met and we painted all that stuff. <laughs> we defaced our own property and then told y'all that Paducah did it. But it worked, right? We won the game. I was like, you got to be kidding me. Listen, everything I believed about Paducah was a lie, right? I mean, Paducah actually had good people in it. Actually was a good place. And get this, they were just misunderstood, Right? Over the Christmas holiday, my family and I, we watched one of our favorite Christmas movies called Home Alone. Who likes the movie Home Alone? You gotta like the movie Home Alone. It's a great movie. I mean, the, the, the star character, his name is Kevin, you know, it's gonna be awesome, right? And we were watching this movie, and uh, I started to see this, this character in the movie who was very misunderstood. And in the movie, there's a scene where Kevin... He's talking to his big brother, Buzz, and Buzz starts to tell him about this guy, Old Man Marley. Here, watch this clip. Check it out, Old Man Marley. Who is he? You ever heard of South Bend Shovel Slam? No. That's him. Back in 58, murdered his whole family and half the people on his block. With the snow shovel. 
Been hiding out in this neighborhood ever since. Well, if he's a shovel slayer, how come the cops don't arrest him? Not enough evidence to convict. They never found the bodies. But everyone around here knows he did it. Now it'll just be a matter of time before he does it again. What's he doing now? He walks up and down the streets every night, salting the sidewalks. Maybe he's just trying to be nice. No way. See that garbage can full of salt? That's where he keeps his victims. The salt turns the bodies into mummies. Wow. Yeah. Look out. Oh, cue ominous music. So Buzz tells his brother that old man Marley is the South Bend shovel slayer. That he, back in 58, he murdered his whole family and most of the people on his block. And Kevin, being a little kid who looks up to his brother, thinks that he's telling him the truth, right? Because he kind of looks scary. This is Kevin's first introduction to old man Marley. And now Kevin, every time he sees old man Marley, what's the first thing he thinks? He thinks of what Buzz told him. He thinks the South Bend shovel slayer, right, with all of his murder, murdering everybody. And he, he brings around this garbage can full of salt where he keeps his victims using the salt to turn the bodies into mummies. That's what Kevin thinks about. Kevin has an understanding that is received from what somebody else told him, not anything that he's ever experienced, and it doesn't even have to be true. It's just what his big brother told him, and it's so much now that it produces fear in him every time he thinks about old man Marley or every time he sees old man Marley. Such a fear that it cannot be contained. I'll show you this next clip from the movie. I said I'm not afraid anymore. Do you hear me? I'm not afraid anymore. So I can tell you guys that before Jesus came to the earth with this new message of good news, of great joy for all people, God had a problem. He had the same problem that the Padukee dragons had. He had the same problem that old man Marley had. God was misunderstood. Not by the world. Because the world didn't even really know about him. The only people that believed in him at this time, the original message comes to is, think about that. There was no America. There was no churches. There was no Bible. 
Like in the picture, I came to this group of people called the Jews. And I want you now to go back with me and remember all of their misfortune. Remember all of their oppression. Remember how they were put in, in, in slavery, how they were taken from their, their own land and, and put into Babylon against their own will by King Nebuchadnezzar. All of these things happen to them. And what happens is God is, is misunderstood by them because the good news first message first comes to these people. And please understand that they had a view of God that had been embedded, embedded through historical Jewish thought. And I already said this, but I want to say this again. They believed that they needed to be saved and saved from whoever was oppressing them at that time. So, listen, you have to understand that when the Assyrians were oppressing them, they were still praying for the Messiah. Hello. And they were saying, God, save us from Assyria. When King Nebuchadnezzar shows up, they're praying the same message. Oh, God, save us. Deliver us from Nebuchadnezzar, from Babylon. We don't want to be here. In fact, we're going to be oppressed so much that we, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that the story, they stood up, and, they, and they're, pl- they're praying that the Messiah will come, right? Fast forward to now they are being oppressed by a new regime. And now they want to be saved from Rome. And they're praying for the Messiah to come. And in their minds, they had a mindset that when God comes, their mindset of God, Jehovah God, was that he is a vengeful God. That he will come and he he will bring a curse on their enemies, man. And who is to blame them for thinking that? Can you imagine your family being sold into slavery? Let's don't jump on the Jews and get mad at the Hebrew nation. Let's don't do that, right? Can't we have a perspective and understand why they were crying out in this way and why they are thinking and having this idea that when God comes and when he sends his Messiah then, they have a filter that says when the Messiah comes, this is how he will deliver us. It will be through violence. It will be through vengeance. And this is the problem. Jesus came to do many things, and one of those things was to finally reveal who God really was. And I'm going to show you really quickly how some really cool stuff of what he does with his own people. And then we'll close, but uh, I'm going to go through this pretty quick. But let's just pick up the story, and uh, let's just talk about Jesus. We begin in Luke chapter 3, And Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, right? The Holy Spirit descends on him as a dove. He's full of the Holy Spirit. He leaves, and we pick up in in Luke chapter 4 that he's now being tempted in the wilderness. Do y'all remember this? For 40 days and for 40 nights. And like a kung fu master, man, he overcomes. And he is not falling into temptation. And he is our hero, right? He is now the Messiah who comes back. And we pick up the story in Luke chapter 4. He comes back to his hometown. Does anybody remember what his hometown was? Nazareth. Good job. Good answer, everybody. Give yourself a pat on the back. He comes back to Nazareth. And and we're about to read. Luke tells us that he goes on the Sabbath day into the synagogue. So let's just pick it up right here. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. 
uh, Luke records that Jesus went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. So this is his hometown. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue. So please just kind of visualize this. He goes into the synagogue, as was his custom. So people recognized him. They knew who he was, right? And did they know him as the Messiah? Did they recognize him as the Messiah? So they recognized him as Jesus, Joseph's son. Jesus then, it says this, he stood up to read, verse 17, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Everybody say Isaiah. Y'all ever heard of the prophet Isaiah before? Is that in our New Testament or our Old Testament? It's in our Old Testament, which is the Hebrew Scriptures. So remember, they didn't have a Bible back then. They just literally had bits and pieces of scrolls, different places. They actually, in this synagogue, had this scroll of Isaiah. It's, we have it in our Bible, the book of Isaiah. And he unrolls it, it says, and he found, he found the place, and you can go find this place too, we're about to, where Jesus, he, he starts to read what was written. And this is a messianic prophecy from Isaiah. In verse 18, he says, Listen to this, guys. He stands up in front of his family and friends and the people that have seen him grow up full of the Spirit of God. This is awesome to us. Maybe not so awesome to everybody. And he says this, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he, the Father God, has anointed me to proclaim bad news or good news? Good news to the poor. He has sent me, guys, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind. He has sent me to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Ooh, that sounds, we're all saying amen. We're all like, yes. And listen, this was something that was very familiar to everybody that would have been in that synagogue, especially the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. He stops mid-sentence, mid-prophecy, mid-messianic prophecy. It says he then, because there's a lot more, he then rolls up the scroll, he gives it back to the attendant and sets down, and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him for a lot of different reasons, okay? But get this, in verse 21, it says, he began by saying to them then, he sets down and he says, today... This scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. We say amen. They said, oh, what? The you know what just hit the fan, guys. You're saying that you're the Messiah? And let me, let me show you something. Luke chapter 4, verse 22, the very next message is very poorly translated, and I'm about to prove to you why. Most biblical translation, I'll put it up there for you, like the NIV says, that when they heard this, that all spoke well of him. But the Greek is literally pantis and martyron, which means, it just means this, all bore witness. They just witnessed it, okay? Now, here's the thing. You can go read Young's literal translation. This is where they actually just translate, not thought for thought, but word for word. So Greek word to English word. And this is how it reads. And all were bearing testimony to him. That's it. 
day, all were bearing testimony to him and were wondering at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not the son of Joseph? So, so get this. Why this is a horrible translation of verse 22, there's a lot of reasons, but uh, the scholar Michael Harden in his masterful work, The Jesus Driven Life, and I'm, I'm going to read uh, something right out of it. This is what he said. Translators have to make what is known as a syntactical decision because when you read the NIV, it's not word for word. It's thought for thought. So they're translating what they think these people were thinking. Thought for thought. Y'all get that? And the literal translation is word for word. So they, the translators have to make a syntactical decision. They have to decide whether or not their bearing witness, because that's exactly what it says, was negative or whether it was positive. Technically speaking, they have to decide whether the dative pronoun to him is dative to his disadvantage or to his advantage. Was the crowd bearing witness to his advantage or were they bearing witness to his disadvantage? In other words, translators have to make a choice. Was the crowd enthralled with his message and, and, um, and bearing positive witness and proud? Hi, that's Joseph's son. Hooray, hip, hip, hooray which we're going to see when you read the rest of the scripture, that makes no sense at all, okay? Or rather, were they upset by what he just said and bore negative witness to dismissing Jesus as, who does he think he is? That's just Joseph's son. And Joseph's a nobody, okay? When you continue to read on in verse 23, verse 24, all the way through 27, we actually see that they bore negative witness. It, it really should read this way. And all were upset, bearing negative testimony to him, and were wondering at the gracious words. The gracious words is what made them mad. I'm about to prove it to you. That were coming forth out of his mouth, and they said, is this not Joseph's son? Otherwise, why would Jesus say what he says next in verse 24 when he says, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his own home, in his own hometown. Why would they all say, yeah, Jesus, we're right behind you, and him go, oh, that's right. Well, it's a great thing that I'm not accepted in my hometown. That makes no sense, right? So they bore negative witness to him. He says no prophet is accepted in his hometown, but the key question here is why? Why did these people get so ticked off? Why are they throwing a fit, getting all riled up in the first place? The answer, to put it plainly, is how Jesus reads from the text and the prophecy, the messianic prophecy of Isaiah. And I'll put it up on the screen for you. Look, on Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 through 2. And let me look up there. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord. Now, this is what Jesus would have saw. And this is what everybody, that, like the Pharisees, would have had this memorized, right? This is, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. That's what he quoted, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom to the captives. Next, and release from the darkness the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus stopped right there. And the day of vengeance of our God. He omitted that. Oh, man. I hate to burst your bubble, but Jesus was a biblical cherry picker. He omitted some things. And right here, he did it. He said, this today is fulfilled. I am, he's telling them, I am the Messiah. And what makes them go 
berserk is that Jesus did not read that one part. He stops in mid-sentence to omit the theological claim that when God brought his Messiah to the world, that he was going to judge the people that had been pressing his people, that he was going to bring vengeance down on the very people that were the enemy of his people. For Jesus, unlike his fellow Jews, God was not going to deliver his people from the Roman occupation through the use of vengeance. Instead, this was what really made them mad. He wasn't coming to just them. Because when they said, when they would hear their prophets or their teachers teach them or their fathers and their mothers read from Isaiah and saying the Messiah is going to come and they would say he is going to let the blind eye see, they would say, yes, our nation is going to be whole again. Our people, because we have been oppressed. He's going to set the captive free. Yes, the Jews, we have been oppressed. We need to be set free. And then when they would get to the part, it would be their favorite part that Jesus left out. And a day of vengeance is coming. A day of vengeance has arrived. And they hoped for that. They wanted retribution. And Jesus, you're saying that you're the Messiah? And not only that, you're saying that he's coming to heal everybody? He's not coming to set us free from Rome. They went livid. They went crazy. Guys, it gets when you continue to read in verse 28, it was so offensive to them. All the people in the synagogue, it says, I'm just reading from the scripture, verse 28, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up. They drove him out of the town. They took him to the brow of the hill, which was out of the town that was built, in order to throw him off of a cliff. That's mad. Who does he think he is? He's the son of nobody. He thinks he can call himself the Messiah, and then he thinks he can change who we view as Jehovah God? Jesus that day learned that it's dangerous to mess with folks' presupposed doctrines. Let me give you the next example. Jesus does the exact same thing again. John the Baptist, we pick up his story. He's in a pickle. He really wants to know, which he already said that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the one to come. But he wants to know because he's just going through some turmoil if Jesus is the Messiah, if he is the one to come. He's in prison for speaking out against King Herod and his minions. So to solve the conundrum, John sends some of his disciples to go and find Jesus and speak with him and ask him that question. Are you really the one? Because I'm hearing things coming from Nazareth. Saying you're changing what we've always believed to be true about you. And Jesus, instead of just giving a yes or no answer, which Jesus most of the time didn't, He, in Luke chapter 7, starts to quote scripture of messianic prophecy. He says to those guys, you go tell John that the blind receive sight. That the lame walk. This is what the Messiah would do. He's quoting from Isaiah 
chapter 29, chapter 35, chapter 61. You go tell him that the lepers are cleansed. Were those things happening? Yes. You go tell him that the deaf here, Isaiah chapter 29, that the dead are raised and the poor have good news brought to them, Isaiah chapter 29. Like the story from Luke, though, there's something going on under the service that when you studied your scripture before, and just because you're an American living in 2019 and you didn't understand the perspective of these people, you might have just looked right over, but you see John the Baptist had the same eschatology as the folks from Nazareth. He thought this is how when God comes, he is going to send the Messiah. And and he he recognized that Jesus was the Messiah, and he was making way for the Messiah. But then this Messiah starts doing things that he doesn't agree with. It's out of what he had always uh, perceived God to be. And so you can even see in in Luke chapter 7, verse uh, Luke chapter 3, verse 7, 8, and 9, John, he, he warns the people of the wrath to come. This is the way that John thought about the things were going to happen uh, when they were going to be delivered. So I want you to see that Jesus, what he does in the response to John the Baptist, as he quotes from all of these prophecies from the book of Isaiah, every time he uses one of those prophecies, he leaves out the violence and the vengeance text. See for yourself. He refers to Isaiah 29, 18 and 19, speaking, In that day, Isaiah said, the deaf will hear and the blind will see. But he leaves out the very next message, and I'll put that up for you, verse 20, that the ruthless will vanish, the mockers will disappear, and all who have an eye for evil will be cut down. He didn't say, the blind see, and you go tell John that the evil are being cut down. Does that sound like something Jesus would do? But, guys, that's what Israel expected the Messiah to do. Are y'all getting this? Are are y'all tracking? Okay. He also quoted Isaiah chapter 35, verse 5 and 6, but he leaves out verse 4. And in verse 4, Isaiah prophesied, here is your God. He will come with vengeance and terrible retribution. For some reason, Jesus leaves that out. In Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2, it's used, but again, I told you already, he left out the and the day of vengeance of our God. Then Jesus does a mic drop when he concludes in verse 23 of Luke chapter 7. He says, and blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. So after he just said all of those prophecies about the Messiah, he's saying, I am the Messiah. And I'm leaving out all of these things that you thought was going to come because I have a new message It is good news, come on somebody, of great joy. And it's not just for the Jews. It's not just for the Hebrew people. It's not about setting up a government of the Hebrew nation to be able to rule and reign all over everybody. He says it's good news and it's great joy for all people. That's, That's some good news. And he says, and blessed is anybody who takes no offense at what I just said. You tell John. He's saying, don't be like those people in Nazareth that try to run me off a cliff for just telling the truth. John, we're boys. Believe. Believe in me. And that's the exact message that Jesus gives in Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, when he teaches that God actually sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. That would have made the Hebrew people so mad. That's not fair. That is not fair. 
God, we have been oppressed. We are righteous. They are not. Are you seeing this? Scene three. The scene begins in Luke chapter 20 with the chief priests and the scribes. And they are questioning Jesus. They did not like him. They did not like his message. They did not believe that he was the Messiah. And so they're always trying to get him into a trap, always question Jesus. And they not only questioned Jesus, but they were continually using their Torah. They were continually using uh, these things to support their arguments during their interrogations, not just of Jesus, but people. So much that they would oppress people, they would judge people, and in their judgment, they would carry it out and literally stone people to death in the streets. Why? Because what you believe to be true about God is how you will act. It's how you will live. So, they believed that Israel was going to have a Messiah who was coming. They're praying for this great, great deliverer, this future king, and that he's going to come with violence and vengeance. That's, y'all understand that by now. And they also believed, though, that he would come from the house of David, King David. Remember the golden years? The great part of their nation's history. So check this out. The reason they believed that was because of a prophecy, and I'll put it up on the the screen for you. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 4, this is what uh, is recorded. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. So Nathan is a prophet. He's a prophet uh, serving the king of the nation of Israel, who is David, King David. The word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture. Y'all remember that? David was out in the pasture tending the flock, right? Tending the flock, and I appointed you then rule over my people. I took you from a shepherd, and I made you a king. I have been with you, God says, wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now, now, this is where the, the, Jews, the Jewish people would get excited about this story. Yeah. God cut off King David's enemies. That's how our God is. That's how we see him, right? They, they would read this, and they would, they would love this, right? And he says, uh, now I will make your name great, David, like the names of the greatest men on earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore, as they did at the beginning. So this is good news for who? For the Hebrew nation, right? That's why they love this so much. And, uh, and so, verse 11, and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people in, in Israel. I also give you rest from your enemies. This is what they've been praying for for years. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. Verse 12, when your days are over, so da- speaking of King David, when your days are over, King David, and you rest with your ancestors, what would that mean? When he dies, right? I will raise up your offspring. Everybody say offspring. I will raise up your offspring. This is where they get, this is where they thought that the Messiah would come from the lineage of David. I will raise up your offspring, says the Lord, to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom, God says. Kingdom. Think of that word. Verse 13. 
He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish his, the, the throne of his kingdom forever. Everybody say forever. So you can see why they believe this. It's, it obviously is speaking of the Messiah that's to come, of a kingdom that will last forever. Right? And they believe that it's coming from, from David. And so, uh, like I said, they, they thought, is it time when the Assyrians were attacking them? Was it time when, when Babylon was attacking them? It, you know, they were always thinking this, and now they're oppressed by Rome, and they've believed, and, and they're believing, you know what? You know what? The only thing that just keeps us going is, Rome, there is going to be hell to pay when our king comes, when our Messiah comes. And Jesus knows that's how the Pharisees and the scribes believed. That's what makes uh, what Jesus does next nothing short of brilliant. Remember what he's doing. He's coming to these people to finally reveal the true nature of God to them because God has been misunderstood up until this point. So Jesus puts the scribes in their place, and then Luke tells us in Luke chapter 20, verse 40, they no longer dared ask him another question because they were trying to trap him, trying to trap him, and he just kept putting them in their place, right? Then when they have no more questions and he shut them up, he asks them this rhetorical question in verse 41. How can they say that the Messiah is David's son? And this would have made them very angry. Obviously, Jesus knows that the Messiah will come from the lineage of David. How many know that Jesus did, right? That he he is the true Messiah. But why did he ask this rhetorical question? What's he up to? He continues in verse 42, for David himself says in the book of Psalms. Okay, here we have Jesus quoting the scripture again. Not the Bible, because there wasn't a Bible back then. But what's he quoting? He's quoting these scrolls that they would have had, and there would have been a scroll. Then it was the scroll of Psalm, right? And he says, for David knew himself in the book of Psalm, the Lord, underline that, said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. To understand what Jesus is doing, guys, I need you to focus on two things very quickly. Okay, first, Psalms 110, verse 1. Hey, we have that. We have that in our Bibles. And the passage that is being quoted by Jesus, the traditional understanding is the passage that the first Lord mentioned there is referring to God, right? So when you read it, and, and it says, uh, the Lord said to my Lord, they traditionally understood that, that God said to my Lord that my Lord would have been David. That's how they all always understood that when it was being taught. That's how they taught it. But now Jesus starts to read the scripture and interpret it completely different than they'd under, ever understood before. When Jesus gets a hold of this passage, he names David as the first Lord. For, because he says, for David himself says, and the future Messiah as the second. Then Jesus asked in verse 44, how can they say that the Messiah is David's son? How can they say that the Messiah is David's son? Why does he ask this? Because for King David to call one of his descendants, he's the king, for to call one of his descendants Lord was never done unless that descendant was special. 
very special in some way that he was deserving such of a title. You simply didn't call your sons Lord because you were the king. So when Jesus attaches himself then to the second Lord, declaring that he is the Messiah, again, in front of the scribes and the Pharisees, he's making a dangerously bold mood, first of all, because he is tinkering with their scripture and what they always understood of the scripture and what they always understood of God. And second, they don't like him in the first place and they don't like his message, okay? If you recall, it's only a few verses prior to that that they had sent spies in order to catch Jesus, to trap him, and they were going to, go read it in Luke 20, 20, they were going to catch him, trap him, and give him to the Roman authorities. They're like, we're done with this guy and we're going to give him to our enemies. So for Jesus to attach himself to the concept of Messiah, it infuriated these guys again, okay? Second, when Jesus quotes Psalm 110, get this, he again does what I just showed you previously. He omits the vengeance text. Psalms 102, I'll put it up on the screen for you. 110 verse 2. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping the dead and crushing the rulers on the whole earth. He will drink from the brook along the way, and so he will lift his head high. They loved that. They loved that passage. That meant so much to them. Retribution, vengeance, the king is coming. He says that he's Messiah and then leaves that out. He doesn't quote any of that. In fact, if you go and study this, this passage, Psalms 110, verse 2 through 3, verse 5 and 7, it is quoted in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 5, Hebrews chapter 6, Hebrews chapter 7, and every time it's quoted in the New Covenant, that is omitted. Every time. This is important because it's crucial to any of these people that understood that of the Davidic Messiah that they believed to come, that he was going to be a Rambo-style guy, that he was going to come in deliverance, but they imagined a king that was coming with a sword in his hand and revenge on his mind. And as we've already seen, this is what John the Baptist was expecting. This is what the, the, the people in Nazareth were, were expecting this is, this is what's going on in that day. So what Jesus does is he attaches himself to the concept, and he says, I am the Messiah. And then he emits the associated vengeance passage from his quotations of the scripture of Messiah. Jesus reorients the assumed understanding of divine deliverance to them. And what does it do? It makes them happy or mad. It makes them furious. He brings out a different view of the Father. Yes, yes, he understands that the Messiah will come from the Davidic line, but he will not be a Davidic warrior type. He will not be bringing vengeance upon his enemies. And, and in fact, we know the rest of the story. Instead, what will he do to his enemies? He will love. He will love his enemies. He will pray for those who persecute him. In fact, in his final breath, when people were literally murdering him, when his own people had handed him over to their enemy, because they hated him so much, if at any time vengeance was in God, when it came out, 
what is forgive him forgive them they don't know what they're doing guys what a complete reversal of what they were expecting in this messiah a new understanding a complete rejection of a violent deliverance and a vengeance Jesus was trying to get a message to the Jews. God is not like what you thought. This is what I'm going to close with. And I'll ask the guys to come help me. I'm just going to read a couple of quotes to you that Jesus said. John chapter 5. Jesus said this. The son, speaking of himself, can do nothing on his own. But he only does what he sees God do. John 6, 38. Jesus said, for whatever the Father does, that's what the Son does. John 10, 29. Jesus said, y'all see where he's going with this? I do nothing on my own, but I speak the things. I only speak the things that the Father instructs me. John 12, 49, for I have not spoken on my own. But the Father who has sent me has given him himself, given me himself, has himself given me a commandment about what to say and what to speak. Why did he have to continue to say that to them? Because that's they didn't believe that God was like that. Jesus went around this world full of mercy. We believe that. Full of kindness. He forgave those who did him wrong, and he loved everybody. He did not come to this world to judge it, but to save it. And do you know why? John 8, 28. For I have come down from heaven. Jesus says, not to do my will to do the will of the one who sent me. The reason that I love is because that's what the Father does. The reason I forgive is because that's what the Father does. It's because that's exactly what the Father would do. Please understand that Jesus, through his life, revealed finally to his people and even to the world the nature of God. He was the exact image of God's essence, the precise imprint of God's being. Colossians 2.9 tells us that in Christ, all of the fullness of the Godhead lived in a human body. In simple terms, Jesus showed us exactly what God is like. Not just a facet of divinity. Jesus was the one true and living avatar of a transcendent God. One day, Philip looks at Jesus and he asks him, show us the Father and that will be good enough. And Jesus looks at him and says, anybody that has seen me has seen the Father. And that was perplexing to them because they didn't think he was anything like the Father. Do you see the message that's coming through for generation after generation? God had been misunderstood. And so he sent his son to the world 
to remedy that. If you remember the clip of Home Alone that I showed you earlier where Kevin's big brother Buzz tells him all about old man Marley and how he's the South Bend shovel slayer. This was the understanding that Kevin had received from his, his brother, and it had produced fear in his life so much that, that he couldn't contain it. Every time that he saw or even thought about old man Marley, just fear came up. I showed you the clip where, where, where just over he was trying to overcome his fear, and he's like, I'm not afraid anymore. I'm not afraid anymore. But he comes face to face with old man Marley again. And what does he do? He screams in fear, right? Well, listen. In the movie, Kevin has an encounter with old man Marley. And he finally gets to meet the real man behind the beard. And I'm going to show you this clip. Merry Christmas. May I sit down? That's my granddaughter up there, the little red-haired girl. She's about your age. You know her? No. You live next to me, don't you? You can say hello when you see me. You don't have to be afraid. There's a lot of things going around about me, but none of it's true. Okay? Been a good boy this year? I think so. You swear to it? No. Yeah, I had a feeling. Well, this is the place to be if you're feeling bad about yourself. It is? I think so. Are you feeling bad about yourself? No. I'm in kind of a pain lately. I said some things I shouldn't have. I really haven't been too good this year. Yeah. I'm kind of upset about it because I really like my family. Even though sometimes I say I don't. Sometimes I even think I don't. Do you get that? I think so. How you feel about your family is a complicated thing. Especially with an older brother. Deep down, you always love them. But you can forget that you love them. And you can hurt them and they can hurt you. And that's not just because you're young. Did you see his face when old man Marley walks up to him? so afraid because what he believes to be true about old man Marley even though it's not true perception is reality there was nothing to be afraid of but he was afraid and old man Marley smiles at him and what's he saying Merry Christmas and he's shocked He's like, that doesn't sound like the South Bend shovel slug. And, and then the guy says, he's like, I'm your neighbor. And, and when you see me, you can say hello. You don't have to be afraid. And then he says this, there's a lot of things going around about me. And what did he say? None of it's true. Guys, that's exactly what was happening when Jesus showed up on the earth. There was a lot of things going around about God that just weren't true. God was misunderstood. It's, it's, it's still happening, I would say, even today. That's why when people hear, if they would really hear the true original message, the good news of great joy for all people, they'd come running to it. 
some people have been told that if they'll just pledge allegiance to God, if they'll give their life to Him, that if they'll acknowledge Him and they'll acknowledge His need for their need for His mercy, if they'll pledge allegiance to His name and His cause, they will be able to escape a horrible fate called hell. But, but if you don't pledge your devotion to him, he will not hear you. And you will not see his mercy. And you will experience his righteous vengeance and eternal damnation. That doesn't sound like good news of great joy for all people. It doesn't sound like love. It doesn't sound like Jesus. It actually sounds like a violent, tyrannical dictator that if you don't do what he says, you feel like If it doesn't sound like Jesus, then, it, then it's not God because God is like Jesus. God is exactly like Jesus. And God has always been exactly like Jesus. What did Jesus do to his enemies? He forgave them. He loved them. Guess what? That's exactly what God does to his enemies. Always. Every time. Jesus told us to bless those who curse us. Why? Because that's what God does. He didn't do anything that he didn't see the Father do. Jesus literally said in Luke chapter 6, verse 36, be merciful just like me. He said just like me. Our Heavenly Father is merciful. And in closing, that's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19, he told those in Corinthian, in Corinth, he said, For God, think about this, was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself so that when Jesus came to this earth and he lived and he died, Paul tells us that God was in him. Never separate. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. Because that's what God does to his enemies. He doesn't count their sins against them. He forgives them. And he gave us, now, Paul says, this is our wonderful message. You see, God was misunderstood, first of all. People had thought that he was separate from Jesus. He never was. He was always in Christ. And what was he doing in Christ? He was reconciling the world to himself. It was not God that needed to be reconciled to the world. Come on. It was the world. It was us that needed to be reconciled to the Father. He could see us, and he could understand us just fine. It was the world that could not see. It was the world that could not understand. The word reconcile means to bring into harmony. So listen, sin came through Adam and sin led to death. It led to death for everybody. It led to alienation. It led to, it led to estrangement. But God was in Christ canceling all that out, reconciling us to himself through his incarnation, through his passion, through his resurrection. We all now receive the gift of reconciliation. It's also known as an atonement. If you write that down, you'll see it's at one minute. He made us one with him again. 
by grace, God in Christ restored us to oneness with God, overcoming all sin. Amen. And all death. Amen. And now we get to experience this unity. We get to experience this harmony with God. You see, God was in Christ, given himself through what? Unconditional love, reconciling the world to himself. And how did he do that? I'm glad you asked. Paul just explained it to us. Not, he did this by not counting our sins against us. God was misunderstood. Listen, making a list and checking it twice. That's Santa that does that. And God is not like Santa. God is like Jesus. He says, I keep no record of your wrong. I do not hold your sins against you. Jesus did not come to the world to change the Father or to appease the wrath of an angry judge. No, Jesus came to reveal the Father. Amen. God is like Jesus, exactly like Jesus. He's always been exactly like Jesus. We didn't know that, but now we do. For God so so loved. You see, Jesus came to the world perfectly revealing the heart of the Father. And he confronts sin the exact way that God would confront sin, this way. What did he say? I forgive you. Which exactly is what God would do and is exactly what God did. This was the message that Jesus brought to the world. It was the good news of great joy for all people. And isn't that almost too good to be true, guys, when I explain it to you? And so Paul says, this is our wonderful message of reconciliation. This is our message. You have been reconciled. It is our message, a message of love, a message of unending mercy. This was the original message that people flocked to good news of great joy for everybody the last clip I'm not going to show it to you but if you remember watching the movie Kevin's family comes home they're all reunited and it feels so good and he looks over and he looks at the window and it's snowing but there's curtains covering the window because there's been somebody who's been misunderstood the curtains are symbolic of the filters of the misunderstandings what were the filters? He's the South Bend shovel slayer. And Kevin walks over to the window, and he peels back the layers. He peels back the filter. He peels back the misunderstanding to reveal old man Marley, the real old man Marley. And what's he doing? He's hugging his son in a warm embrace of love. Is he killing his son? because that's what Kevin was told that he would do. The heart of a father, he loves it. And then he gets on his knees, and, and Kevin sees that it's finally revealed who old man Marley really is. He gets on his knees, and he hugs his granddaughter. It's a beautiful picture. And the misunderstanding comes right off. You see, God had a problem before Jesus came. He was completely misunderstood. And so he sent his son to this world. And Jesus is the one who pulled back the curtain. Come on, somebody. He pulled back the veil. He removed the veil of misunderstanding to God. He revealed to the Pharisees and to the scribes and all of those in Nazareth that even today, God 
doesn't just do love, that God is love. Even when we turn away from God, that he is always confronting us with his love, that God is always towards us. He comes not as a condemning judge, but come on, as a great physician. Amen. God never turns away from humanity, that God is perfectly revealed in Jesus. The last thought I'm going to leave you with is think about that. When did Jesus ever turn away from a sinful humanity? In any of the stories that you can pull up in your scripture, when did he get to the point that he saw the sin of the people and was so disgusted that he said, I am too holy and I am too perfect because he was holy and he was perfect. He is holy and he is perfect. And he said, I can't even look on your sin. When did Jesus ever do that? Did Jesus ever do that? No. Who was the ones that did that? The Pharisees. And I'll tell you this. Jesus is not like the Pharisees. Or God is not like the Pharisees. God is like Jesus. He always has been and he always will be. We can just stand to your feet this morning. I just want to pray. And I want to borrow a prayer from the Apostle Paul. So if you could, just close your eyes. Paul, he prayed this in the book of Ephesians. And this is what he said. He said, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you will know him better. And I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth derives its name. And I pray that out of his glorious riches that he may strengthen you with power in his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. And I know this love that surpasses all knowledge and understanding that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine according to the power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and forever.